Well, let me invite you to uh, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. And uh, if you get a Bible from us, it's page 536. Though this is technically week two of this series, it kind of feels like week one. Uh, the series is titled, Who Is This? Let me remind you, too, study guides are available. Uh, you can purchase them over in the bookstore for five bucks, uh, or you can download them free online. The reason we do both, frankly, is we find a lot more people tend to want to have this, hold this, and so we love doing that for you. We don't make money on it, but it is just something we provide for you. So if you want to grab those over in the bookstore afterwards, feel free to do that. The whole idea of this series, uh, Who Is This?, are the encounters with Jesus. Uh, we're going to look at, and I, and I just want you to see, just going to kind of illustrate this, that in all four Gospels, and more than once in each Gospel, there's a moment in the life of Christ where somebody or a group of people are asking the question, who, who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? It, it's typically after he's done something amazing uh, in terms of really reversing kind of the laws and bending the laws of nature or forgiving sin or some public declaration. It's, it's not always asked in the most positive light. It's asked by his disciples, by strangers. But they ask, who is this? And, and what Jesus does and we see that in the scripture, what Jesus does is does not leave kind of a neutrality as an option. And Jesus says that you're either for me or against me. At one point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus talks about seeing they do not see. When we talk about that, what we speak of here is not just physical eyesight, not the eyes of your head, but the eyes of your heart. We talk about that again in the study guide. I find myself using the study guide a lot this week. I really recommend it. Study guide is going to be a very helpful tool in the study. But, but one of the quotes from that, we, when we speak of seeing Jesus, we don't mean seeing with our eyes of our head, but the eyes of our heart. The Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. He is not here to see physically. He's in heaven until he comes again to be seen by everyone. But the Bible does say that we may see Jesus in another sense. It speaks of, quote, the eyes of your heart, Ephesians 1.18. It speaks of seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Jesus himself spoke of, of two kinds of seeing. One kind is physical eyes seeing, and the other is spiritual eyes. When we see with our spiritual eyes, we see the truth and the beauty and the value of Jesus for what they really are. Therefore, a blind person today may see Jesus more clearly than many who have physical eyesight. So that's our hope in these encounters. We, we, we look at Jesus in a variety of settings, and, and we see this question posed. So let me just do that from each of the four Gospels. So it begins in, in Matthew chapter 21, verse 10. It's page 536. It's the triumphal entry. Jesus has come into town. The group has preceded him. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is in the highest. Matthew 21, 10, and it says, When he entered Jerusalem, all the city stirred and was saying, Who is this? Who is this guy that generates this sort of a response? 
Mark's Gospel. This is one of my all-time favorites. Mark chapter 4, page 4, I think it's 445. Mark chapter 4, verse 39. What's happened is Jesus is on, the, on a boat and the sea, and there's a storm that comes along. Jesus is asleep. The disciples awake him and say, don't you really care that we're going to perish? And he says, oh, you of little faith. Verse 39, he rebukes the wind and says to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they became very much afraid. So I want you to see they were afraid. Now they're very much afraid. It was really scary when the ship was being thrown all over, but now the sea is calm, and now they're, they're faced with something more powerful than that storm. They're filled with the one who can control the storm. They became afraid, and they said to one another, Who then is this? Who is this guy? Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verse 21, page 559. Jesus is faced with the paralytic. There's some man, and they're, they're around, and they're trying to find ways. Can he be healed? And, and, and Jesus says, get up and walk. And, and, then, and then Jesus says, your, friend, your, your sins are forgiven. Verse 21, the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, and they say, who is this man that blasphemes? In other words, claims he can forgive sin. The last one is in John's Gospel, John chapter 12, verse 34, page 585. Just another snapshot from the life of Christ. John chapter 5, verse 34. Leading up to it, Jesus has been teaching, and he talks about the idea that that he will be lifted up from the earth, verse 32, and draw all men to himself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death he must die. And the crowd then answered him and said, We have heard uh, out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can this be? The Son of Man must be lifted up. Who is this Son of Man? It's a legitimate question for all time. And hopefully it's one that all of us are going to be able to answer uh, by the end of the series for sure, maybe even a bit by the end of today. Now, most of you in this room are going to say that Jesus is God come in the flesh to die on the cross to save his people from their sin, but it would be naive to think that that's everyone. I said, technically, the series started last week. We, we said that when we introduced the series, it's like some movies or TV shows or, or plays that you've seen or books that you've read where, the, where the, the book or the play or the movie starts with a scene that chronologically is the last scene and then the story builds up to it. So we asked the question on Easter morning, who is this that rose from the dead? Now, let me give you the answer. Jesus. We approach it in, in a very matter-of-fact way. I think over the years, uh, I, I think that was my 21st or 22nd Easter, and, and kind of they're just hard messages. But, I, but I've, I've morphed from a position of trying to defend the resurrection to simply proclaim the resurrection. And to say, here's what the Bible says, and, and to be honest, it's what history says. 
and now, especially with internet and Google and so many tools, it's easy for me to say, you go home and do the work. You go home and Google resurrection facts. You look at just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. And you'll see, I think, to the, to the mind that's open and fair, I, I think you'll see this, this overwhelming evidence that if you sit fairly, logically, honestly, you're going to look at that and you go, know, at, at very least you're going to conclude this, that on that first Easter morning the tomb was empty. Seems to be very, very hard to deny that. Now that doesn't in and of itself prove the resurrection. That only proves an empty tomb. What the Bible also tells us, and the evidence tells us, is that then Jesus appeared, that Jesus is alive, that all of the theories that try to explain away the resurrection, and, and many of you are familiar with so many of them, that somebody stole the body, that makes no sense. The Jews don't want the body gone. The Romans certainly don't want the body gone. The, the Christians, <laughs> if they stole the body, they're not about, I don't think, to go. These are the same guys, Peter, the same guy that's intimidated by a little servant girl. I don't know that he's going to go and die for a lie. Where are all the theories? The swoon theory, that may be one of my favorites. Because that one really takes faith. That's the one that basically said Jesus went into a coma. So he'd been beaten, scourged, crowned with thorns. All the things, shoved the spirit aside, wrapped, put in a tomb. And then Jesus was kind of in this, this sense of coma, hibernation, and he comes out of it and he shakes himself out of it and regains all of his strength. And, and then in this very difficult condition, then picks up this 2,000. If he did that, you ought to fall and worship him, really. <laughs> seemed to me. I, I think the, there's a way in which that takes more faith than, than what really happened. Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, the point I love to make is, if that's true, and it is, then you ought to go, whoa, there's something special here. There's a big deal. Because evidently, he is who he said he was, the Son of Man. But more importantly for us at this moment to grasp, we are who he says we are. We say that's what's lacking so much in the world we live in today is we have this idea of coming to God and coming to God on our terms, conforming him to our image rather than us understanding we're made in his image and he's an objective, not a subjective truth. So a lot of this discussion, especially today, is going to sound very much like the lessons that we just had from the book of Galatians. So we come back and we say, when it comes to God, and I, I get it, I started a book, we came in, the girls and I, uh, I, I flew to Columbus, Ohio on Monday and then drove up to Worcester, Massachusetts and visited a friend and his father and then drove nine, nine and a half hours to see my mom. And then on Wednesday, my daughters came in and the three of us there were visiting my mom and my brothers. And, and uh, in, in this process, I was reading a book and it was commenting on kind of the, the next Christians, the mindset that's present now, and the world we live in, and kind of the uniqueness that we face, that, that there is this discussion, though there's kind of open hostility toward God, that more and more people are willing to talk about God in their own terms as they define him, rather than God as he really is. And so you get to things like the resurrection, or you get to things like sin, like we're going to talk about today. And people have their own wild theories that they've put together, rather than to go, no, this is what the Bible says. And, and, and here's what I've discovered. 
And when I say discovered, I didn't invent it at all. I simply saw it over and over again. And it's that, pa- it's that pattern you see in Isaiah 6, that when I begin to see God for who he really is, Jesus rose from the dead, all of a sudden I see myself for who I really am. And then I understand God is the one who defines the sense of the relationship we have, the depth of the relationship, the fact that we are at war with him, and that the only way of reconciling is on his terms. I uh, stayed, When I stayed in my brother's house, I, I called it the Lincoln bedroom. He has one bedroom that's got all this Lincoln stuff and paraphernalia and U.S. history stuff. But there's a picture of, of Grant sur- uh, uh, receiving the surrender of, of Robert E. Lee at Appomattox. And, and on, that, on that day, Lee didn't dictate the terms of surrender. Grant did. When you come to God, the terms of reconciliation aren't defined by you, they're defined by him. And so we answer, who, who is it that rose from the dead? It's Jesus. Well, today marks the, now the beginning. Here are the questions we're going to look at over the next four weeks. Okay? Who exposes darkness? By the way, I'm going to, I mean, this is going to be great. Jesus is the answer to all of these. Okay, hopefully you knew that. Some of you are going, really? Yeah, so we always got to reinforce that. But okay, who is it exposed to darkness? Jesus. Who is it that knew no sin? It's Jesus. Who is it that takes away the sin of the world? It's Jesus. Who is it that is God and Savior and King? It's Jesus. So who exposes the darkness? What we're going to talk about today is the condition of man, not necessarily in an economic sense or an, or an intellectual sense, even a physical sense, but a spiritual sense. So we want to go back. We want to kind of look at the condition of man. We're going to talk a lot about sin and what is sin and, and where did it come from and what are its effects and how does it affect us? Because we, we tend to think in life after death, that for sure, but what about this life that we have now, and, and then is there a solution in this? So I want you to go to page one of your Bible, so it'll be Genesis chapter one, and we're going to start there and be reminded that God created, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, Genesis 1, 1, and then there, there's a story through the balance of chapter one of God creating heaven, earth, and all that goes with it. In verse 31, the Lord saw that he had all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So, so as God has created, and God has designed, and, 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 and God has, has, has moved through creation, God creates, and he sits at the end of it, and he looks back, and he assesses it, and he says, it is very, very good. Chapter 2 gives us a little more detail of the creation of man and woman, and then, and then jump over to chapter 4, and you see Cain and Abel. Chapter 2 of Genesis ends with Adam and Eve naked in the garden and unashamed. picture of nakedness there is innocence, it's transparency, there's nothing to hide, there's nothing that they're ashamed of in the midst of all of that. I get to Genesis chapter 4, and here's strife and jealousy and anger and lying and murder and bitterness and all sorts of evil, and and you have to step back and go, what in the world happened? Well, what happened in that story of creation is what affects mankind for all time. Ray Stedman, writing a 
Genesis chapter 3 writes this. It explains over a hundred centuries of human heartache and misery and torture and bloodshed. If you remove this chapter, Genesis 3, from the Bible, the entire book becomes incomprehensible. But the most striking thing about it is that we find ourselves here. The temptation and the fall are reproduced in our lives many times a day. We have all heard the voice of the tempter, felt the attraction of sin, and we all know the pangs of guilt. So all of a sudden, Genesis 3 really becomes important for us to be, under, to be able to understand the world around us. God tells us in this story that Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're given a restriction, and frankly, though it sounds really severe, depends on your perspective, they're in the garden, they're in paradise. I, I, always, thought, I always had this kind of picture of, 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 of them more in Gila Bend than anywhere, and then God says, don't eat from that tree, and they go, my word, there's no other tree, we're in trouble. But they're in paradise, and so here's this whole orchard of trees and all that they want, and he said, well, don't eat from that tree. Then the tempter comes, and then Eve is deceived in Adam's sins. Let me give you just a couple of broad definitions of this idea of sin. Let me give you J.I. Packer, then Wayne Grudem, and then Tim Keller. Packer writes this, Sin may be comprehensively defined as a lack of conformity to the law of God. Now, we could probably put a period there, but he expands it. Lack of conformity in act habit, attitude, outlook, disposition, motivation, and, and mode of existence. Dr. Grudem kind of shrinks that down. He says, sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. And Tim Keller simply says, sin is slavery to anything other than God. So what happens is sin comes into the world. And all of a sudden, this innocence and this, this light now moves into darkness, who exposes that darkness? Jesus does. Turn to John chapter 3. It's page 577 in the Bible we gave you. A lot of turning, by the way, page to page today. John chapter 3. Now, when we talk about John's gospel, we say John chapter 3, your mind kind of immediately spins to what is clearly the most familiar passage, I think, in all of Scripture. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Now we come a little bit after this. And, and, and Jesus tells us that in verse 19, this is the judgment. By that he means, here's the verdict. Jesus comes. He is the light of the world. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world. This is Jesus. And men love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Their deeds are evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. He said those that are in sin are those that are in darkness. And the darkness hates the light. The light comes and the light begins to expose it. Isn't that what he says? Jesus said, here's the fear. They run away from the light because their deeds are evil. And they don't want those, those deeds to be exposed. Uh, when, I'm, when I'm home, like I just wa was, every time I'll do the same thing. And I'll, I'll go for a long ride, and I'll go through all the kind of like, here, here's, where, here, here's the house that I lived in, 
when my parents were, uh, uh, where I was born, uh, here's like the first house. And then that house we lived in, we lived in two houses primarily most of our lives. And little stops along the way. Here's where we used to shop. Here I remember my mom sending me to the store to get some bread. And I remember losing the change on the way home and my dad beating me and, and, um, for a quarter. And I'm, I'm over it. Not all these other things. Well, there was a bar I used to hang out. Now, bar, I mean, the, the term has been lost in our culture because now you have something like Postinos. This isn't a bar. It's a, you know, those aren't bars. Oregano's not a bar. A bar, bar is a bar. And one of the characteristics about a bar, that's how you know it's a bar, is it is what? It is dark. So I think of the bar we used to hang at back home, a place called the Circle Tap. It, and, and there were windows, but those we were a Pabst Blue Ribbon bar, classy guys. So, so that everything was, was filmed in, in this blue Pabst Blue Ribbon. So there were windows, but you could only see out enough to know that it was daylight. And I remember going in there one day when we were still a Pabst Blue Ribbon bar, but they were converting from old Pabst Blue Ribbon to new Pabst Blue Ribbon. And I'd never seen the windows were all open and clean and the doors were open. And, and I was stunned at what a dump this place was. <laughs> I was stunned. We used to eat? Did we ate here? Okay. And that's what the light did. So, so you're that dumpy little sinful place, your heart. And along comes Jesus. He's the light and he exposes that. He's the one who exposes it. He's the one who reveals who we really are. Sin comes along, and it, does, it doesn't show us reality. I mean, I, I, a couple of, one of the things I do almost every time when I'm home is I graduated from a, a school, St. Ambrose College, now St. Ambrose University, and almost always I'll go by, go by the bookstore, and do they have any new stuff? Is there a new shirt or something I want to get or a gift for somebody? And, and, I, and I thought of a couple of things, but... But I was reflecting on, because St. Ambrose has just taken over the neighborhoods there. The school has just grown. But I was reflecting back to my college uh, years. I was there, not, not, you know, three terms. Nixon, Johnson, and <laughs> I was there a while. And I remember that we would periodically, our mascot was the, the bees, through fear in the heart of our opponent. And so the center, of the, <laughs> the center of the college was a memorial hall, which was obviously called the Beehive. And I remember, this was in 71, 2, 3, 4, 69, 68, a lot of it. But I remember on occasions being in or around the Beehive in a contemplative mood With, with other students contemplating what is reality? <laughs> well, once you get to Genesis 3, you, you can't find reality because what sin does is distort. Distorts the, the truth. Eve doubts God's word. It distorts morality itself. What's right? She trusts her own judgment, her own identity. She puts herself above God. Well, that's what sin does. 
So in comes this sin, this, this distortion. Okay? So when I'm talking about sin, what I'm talking about is, is I'm here, God, you're here. Now, how did it begin? Well, obviously, we have some indication. You got that already by Genesis 3. But turn to page 612, or it's Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, Paul is, is writing, and he, and he simply says this. Therefore, 512, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sin. What the Bible teaches us is this, that we were in Adam. He was our representative. And that when he sinned, that sin is now passed on to all people who have ever lived or will ever live. I took the girls over to the John Deere, not, not to the factory, not to world headquarters, but downtown. There's kind of a museum in the John Deere store. And, you know, the girls always, especially Sarah, she's always going to pick up something, you know, some John Deere stuff for the girls. And there's a display in there. And, and there's this, this two bins, and it's kicking out kernels of corn. And it's showing world population and population in rural areas. And, and, are now, and, and that corn's coming out like this. And there's little ways where you can go and see the world population in 2020, 2050. Well, it's, I'll tell you what's interesting is to go back and see what it was. So when I was born, the world population was about 2 billion. It's now 7 billion. In all shapes and sizes and nationalities. But the one thing all of us have in common is if you could go up to Salt Lake and, and trace our ancestry back far enough, we'd all end up with two people. Adam and Eve. And from that, we inherited sin. That's what he says. Death comes into the world. That's how we know. How do we know that all of us have sinned? Because all of us die. That's why, by the way, the virgin birth is important. Let me take you back to the, to the beehive again. I remember being in there one night, and there was a Dutch Catholic theologian, so a priest, and, and he was there, and, and I, just, I, mean, I was never a smoker. I never smoked cigarettes. I like cigars. I love the smell of a cigar, a pipe. There was a guy, I picked the girls up at the hotel um, Friday morning. There was a guy out there smoking a pipe. You don't smell that smell much anymore. It's a great smell. And this guy, he would just, he would just suck it on these cigarettes, and he said, gosh, I'm coughing. I'll be all right. And he sucked it on his cigarette. And, 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 he, and he said, he said to us, minds of mosh, he said, what's important, the virgin birth or the product of the birth? The virgin birth, the process, or Jesus? Or Jesus? And I remember the time going, this is profound. Yeah, it's profoundly stupid is what it is because the virgin birth is critical because if Jesus isn't born of a virgin, then he's a sinner like you and me, and at this point, we might as well die for each other. That's what makes him the perfect sacrifice. How did this all begin? It, it began through Adam's sin. Sin comes into the world, and, and I guess this is important, the point we want to camp on here for a while, is it affects all of us. So in Romans chapter 5, just turn to the left, Romans chapter 3, because it, it's declared there in 5.12, but kind of the verse that we identify most often with it is Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
That's, that's the condition of all of us, without exception. I used to work for a guy who was a wonderful guy, but, but theologically, just a, little, just a little odd. And he had all sorts of, of theological views that were based on nothing but his own impression. And one of the things that was really key to him was reincarnation. Now, before you mock him, you need to know that approximately 40% of the people in this country believe in reincarnation. Now, let me define reincarnation for you. If at first you don't succeed, die, die again. Okay, that's reincarnation. And so I remember talking to him one time. He's talking about reincarnation, and he's giving me this whole thing. And in the process of this, I said to him, I said, explain to me why you come back, and you come back, and you come back as a lower life form. What's that mean? Live in Tucson, sure, you know that. <laughs> so you come back as a lower life form, something down there. So, so you can just see that, higher life form. And then eventually you become perfect. And in this process of becoming perfect, he said, then you spin off and you have your own whatever it is you have. And so I said to him, have you ever seen one of these perfect people? And he said, no, I haven't. And I said, why do you think that is? And he said, well, you know, all these people in the world, yada, yada. I said, no, it's because they don't exist. We, we know it. We instinctively, we say it all the time. No one's perfect. Well, look at here. Go back just a little bit earlier. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. and Together they've become useless. There's none. Here's the, here's the definitive statement of every person that's ever lived. There's none who does good, not even one. Now, we want to push back at that and say, no, 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 no. I, I know certain people who do good, and they, they'll, they'll, they'll cut your lawn when you're gone, or snow when snow comes, they'll shovel your water, whatever they are, you know, they'll, they'll be, you're going home, and it's this little lady, and she bakes you cookies, whatever it is. And, and, and what God is saying is, well, you're looking at the action. I'm looking at the heart of the actor. And the problem is a heart problem. The, the term that we use to describe this is depravity and total depravity. Now, now, now hang in here for a, point, a minute. This is really important. Uh, Tyler has a great way of saying this. He says, if sin were blue, we'd all be smurfs. Okay? Now, what he's saying is total, depra total depravity doesn't mean we're as bad as we can possibly be. Hitler didn't kill his mother. But it means it's we're as bad off as we could possibly be. That when sin came into our lives, it touched every area of our life. J.I. Packer. Total depravity declares there's no part of us that's untouched by sin. Therefore, no action of ours is as good as it should be. And consequently, nothing in us or about us ever appears meritorious in God's sight. We cannot earn God's favor no matter what we do. That's important is to see that. Is all of us are impacted by sin... And the wage of sin is death. It's separation from God. Sin has an impact on us, not, not just in terms of eternity, but in terms of life here. That you may be 98.6. Uh, you know, may, may have that blood pressure that's 120 over 70. You know, you may be picture-perfect health physically, but you're dead spiritually. And the barometer for this, this becomes very important now, the barometer for this is God's definition, not yours. I mentioned I flew into Columbus. 
Okay, so I fly into Columbus, I, I drive up to Wooster, Ohio, and Wooster, Ohio is a branch of The Ohio State University. <coughs> the Ohio State University, it's got something to do with their agriculture, blim blim, I don't know. Well, one of the things the students were, were doing while we were there, obviously preparing for fields and all this, is they were literally, literally now measuring using infrared. So one of the things light does, the light comes into the world, is it's a measurement. And Jesus said, here's the measurement, it's perfection. How you doing? So all of a sudden we realize this is the condition, not just of some people, but this is the condition of all of us. That we're as bad off as we can possibly be. That our heart is desperately wicked. That, that your two-year-old that you placed over there today, as you begin to raise him or begin to raise her, you don't have to teach him to lie. You have to teach him to tell the truth. They in, in, instinctively hide. Why? They're in the dark. Now, this is not just a fancy phrase. you got to grab it. It's not that they're sinners because they sin. It's because they're sinners that they sin. All they're doing is showing you who they really are. So if you want to understand the consequences of sin in our life, gosh, your Bibles, this, I'm almost embarrassed to have you turn here again. It's Ephesians chapter 2. It's page 634. Your Bibles almost ought to start falling open to this section. But it's Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, and he's speaking about our life now, and he's talking about their life apart from Christ, and he says, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, page 634, Ephesians 2.1, in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of power and the spirit that's working in the sons of disobedience. So you could circle now, if you want, in this passage, kind of three sections. Dead, in verse 1, sons of disobedience, verse 2, children of wrath, verse 3. He says, that's how you were. You formerly walked that. So we saw that when we studied Galatians 5. We produced the fruit of the flesh. So in our life is all the things we saw back in Genesis 4, strife and jealousy and, and, and pride. And we're more concerned about us. What about me? So when Jesus comes along and says, love your neighbors yourself, you go, well, that, I can't, that's not going to work for me because I love me. I love me too much to love my neighbor. The only possible reason I'd love my neighbor is if I thought somehow it was going to benefit me. And that's what sin does. When I was in college, there was a bumper sticker, ubiquitous, that said this, question authority, rebellion. Nobody's going to tell me what they're going to do. That goes all the way back to the garden. That goes all the way back to Genesis 3. As Eve said, I'm not going to have anybody put any rules on me, any restrictions on me. And again, I, I've been getting a lot of emails lately about, boy, be careful on the politics. You're getting too much politics. And then I'm getting other people saying you need more politics. And, you know, frankly, you need to understand something. I don't care. So that's going to matter a lot here. I don't care. But I can tell you this. This baby right here, this country, is not manageable. You can give it to Mitt. You can give it to Barack. You can give it to whoever you want. But you've got 330 million special interest group all saying, what about me? And you have conflicting wants. You're not, you're, 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 I don't know that anybody could lead this mess. And, and it's true. It's a homeowners association. It's a country club. It's anything. What about me? 
And I, and I can say, I see it in my homeowners. I, I, mean, I do not understand these dogs. There are dogs everywhere. I do not understand it. And I don't understand how you can have a dog that barks. I don't understand it. I, I, I can't, it, it's beyond my comprehension. And yet I know if I were to confront that person, they would say, but it's my right to have a dog. And I'd say, but it's your right to have a dog, but I shouldn't know you have it unless I see you walking it. And we're like this in a homeowner's association over a dog. And now you're going to manage the world. What is that? Sin. I want me. It's the consequences. Now, relationships are broken. Everything's distorted. Well, that's what happens here. But after life, Paul tells us in Romans 2.5, we're storing up wrath. To be absent from the body, for the believers to be present with the Lord. To be absent from the body of a non-believer is to be separated from God forever. And to be able to understand that. I, I'm home in... Uh, my mom, we moved my mom from her condo, and it's only about a mile away, into a very, very nice, it isn't even assisted living. I, I don't even know what it is. It's kind of like an apartment complex for older people. And very nice, uh, fun to watch. They have Friday, <laughs> uh, my mom didn't realize it. Friday night is happy hour there. So my brother and I discovered that. So we said, let's go down. So my mom and I and my brother are playing cards. And, and uh, if you put free in front of anything, old people show up, okay? So it's like free. Now, they're going to go over there and eat the dinner they've already paid for, but they get like nachos here. And so there was a lady, and free wine. I, I guess wine was free. I don't know. There was a lady, and it was so cool. I said to my brother, look at that chick. She had a walker and a glass of wine in both hands. <laughs> it was awesome. It was everybody in there. Okay. <laughs> but, but, I mean, like, none of these people are doing a lot of long-term planning. They're okay. <laughs> as old. They're going to die. And, and, and what the Bible says is, is once you die, you're either in heaven or you aren't. Not based on what you did but based on whether you accept the gift that God extended to you of life in Christ. There's the illustration of a group of monks, and I understand it's a true story, that every morning they would gather around a, a, a grave that was dug, that prayer and meditation. And then the next monk that would die, they'd bury him in that. They'd dig a new grave, and then they'd repeat that. And they could do this at this home. <laughs> they could do this at this home. I mean, these people were, these people were old, okay? Well, when I die, what the Bible says is that this sin, if not dealt with, means I'll spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. I had a friend who came to a priority living study, and he had a son who was five or six, and, and his mom, so the boy's grandmother, died. And he was trying to deal with this, and, you know, and we had to deal with that some with Susan and, and the boys, as, you know, Braden's kind of old enough, and the others, you know, how do you deal with that? And so I was trying to explain to that, and, of course, he was, he was asking about, about where is Grandma? Like, like, Yale had a great line the other day. He said, he said to, to Haley, Mom, can't, can't Nana just come back for my birthday? Just for my birthday. He said, no, honey, she's with Jesus right now. One day we can go see her. Perfect. And, and so he's explaining to this boy, and, and the boy goes, is his mom in heaven, grandma in heaven? And, and the father's having a real problem because he's pretty confident she isn't. But how do you tell a six-year-old boy, yeah, hey, grandma's in hell? 
So the boy started to say, now the boy just deduced this from what the boy knows, what the boy's been taught. Well, Grandma didn't love Jesus, did she? No. Uh, Grandma didn't go to church, did she? No. Grandma didn't read the Bible, did she? No. Grandma, Grandma didn't care about any of these things, did she? And here's the boy's conclusion. Grandma is in hell, isn't she? See, I, I love that because it strips away all that sentimentality about grandma and grandpa. Poor old Nana. Well, poor old Nana is in hell. Because she wasn't just poor old Nana. She was a sinner who hated God all her life. But she covered it up very well. How many sins does it take to separate us from God? James 2.10 if I keep the whole law and stumble at one point, I'm guilty of it all. In other words, it's one. We're separate. That's all of us. And the wage of sin is death. Max Licato writes about Jeffrey Dahmer and writes about, here's what bugs me about Jeffrey Dahmer, he writes. Not that he raped innocent boys and young men. Not that he killed these boys that he raped. Not that he cut them up and not that he ate them. What drives me crazy is that apparently three months before he died, he came to Christ's repentance and faith that was baptized and was saved by grace. That doesn't seem right. But here's a problem. Jeffrey Dahmer, you. I remember one time I was posing this question and trying to put it in some sort of language we'd get, and I, I said to the guy, I don't remember now who it was, I said, you know the difference between, between me and Adolf Hitler? And here's what the guy said, yeah, one little mustache. <laughs> Meaning we're all in that boat. How many sins does it take to separate us from God? It only takes one. And yet we're, we're wonderful at kind of pushing that away. John points this out in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 10. He's saying, listen, if you, if you say you don't sin, then you're a hypocrite. If you say you don't sin, you're deceiving yourself. If you say you don't sin, you're calling God a liar because he says all of those. Now, if you confess your sin, no, you agree with God of what it is. He's faithful. He'll just, he'll forgive you. He'll bring you into his kingdom. That's really where this whole series is, is driving us, is, is to see ourselves for who we really are. I wrote, <laughs> I wrote this this morning. I can imagine someone saying, I came here today hurting, needing a word of encouragement. The world is so negative, and you made it worse. <laughs> That's not easy to do. This is a, this is a gift. But I get it. But, but here's what I need to understand, is though things are, on my own, helpless and hopeless, they're not helpless and hopeless if I come to Christ in repentance and faith. That, that, that's the darkness, that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that eternal life is found in Christ and no one else. Now, you may be sitting there today going, whoa, 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 give me more, give me more, give me more. That's where we head in the rest of this series. But you may not need to wait for more. It may be when this, when this service is over, you need to come to the front to talk to the men and women that will be in the front, either over in the conference center or here in the chapel, and they'll be here to, to, to talk to you and to talk about you, <laughs> or to talk with you. They'll talk about you when you leave, but they'll talk with you now. Look at that one. That one's more messed up than any of them. No, we don't do that. 
But, but that, that's that answer. The answer is Jesus. That's what we looked at next week. Who is he who knew no sin? Well, that's Jesus. When I said everyone who's ever born was born with a sin nature, the exception, and you got that in the middle of the message, is Jesus. Why? What did he do? Why did he come? What was the whole purpose in his being here? We're going to talk about that next week. Now, if you're over in the, in the conference center, Brian's going to come and close your time together. If you're here with us in the chapel, Jake's going to come, and he's going to lead you in a time of communion. And then the band's going to come back and close our time of worshiping the Lord through song. But, but I, I hope that what you heard today, though it may, it may be, for some of you, that may be brand new stuff. It may sound very harsh or judgmental. It isn't harsh or judgmental. I'm saying we're all in this. This is every one of us. That's our spiritual condition. That's who you are. You know what? You know it, don't you? Yeah, you really know it kind of mask over it and you play a game but deep down inside you know something's wrong that's okay because it can be made right through Jesus it's a story that you saw one of the dangers and in, in I think in the story that you saw with Bill is you look at that and go why did I, I'm not a heroin guy I didn't rob anybody I guess I'm not that bad the point is not here was Bill the point is circumstantially it's different but substantially it's all the same we were lost we need a redeemer. It's Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thanks for that amazing truth. Familiar in a way to many of us, brand new to others, to those for, for whom this is new stuff today, God, I, I pray that, that you would let us hear that message and respond. God, don't let us ever grow weary of your grace, your mercy. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.